Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Art Staple. Art, what's going on, man? Not too much. Always happy to be back in town. This is exciting. This is our fifth show, I believe. I was yeah. kind of going through the Rolodex in my head, and we've done some pretty high leverage moments in Islanders <laughs> history, I feel like. We were like right at the apex of the Garth Snow, Doug Wade Islanders. We yes. did like the day after John Tavares left town in free agency. We did last year when obviously everything was uh, going swimmingly <laughs> with the Islanders. And then now I feel like it's... Uh, it's reached a bit of a boiling point. I follow quite a I'm, I'm a pretty active member of Isles Twitter, I think. I, I follow along what's going on, and uh, people seem to be pretty pretty upset. I think it's it's weird because it's all about sort of perspective, right? If you, like, miss the start of the year and you just jumped right into the NHL season right now and you were like, the Islanders will have, like, a 70% chance by most models of making the playoffs. They're right in the wild card mix. They're, like, 36 and 23 or whatever the record is. I'd be like, yeah, that seems like a pretty reasonable outlook for them. But I think just because of, like, how hot they were to start the year and how bad they look now, I think people are really kind of taking those two extremes. Yeah, you know, I think from a from a statistical modeling standpoint, when they were on the the fifteen zero and two run and started whatever it was sixteen three and two, they were outplaying their numbers by an incredible amount. So much luck was involved. Their goaltending was was at a really high level. Both guys, Thomas Grice and Semyon Varlamov, were playing really well. It was kind of the same formula they used for a lot of last season: um, timely goals, that sort of yep. thing, winning a lot of overtime games. So I think they were due for some sort of regression. But when that hit. It also combined with some pretty key injuries to some of their guys that are not household names around the league. But when the Islanders lose Adam Pellick and Casey Zizekas, it's a big deal because yeah. of the way they play. So uh, I think those factors kind of combined, and especially the good start. You know, I think when you live in, in the world of fandom on Twitter, especially NHL fandom, uh, the highs are very high and the lows are very low. So, um, you know, it, it's not, I think, to be where they are right now, if you had just sort of taken a whole season and not the super high start and the super mediocre last 45 games, you'd be like, okay, this is probably not a bad season for the Islanders in year two of the Lamarillo Trots here, that they're still fighting for a playoff spot for a team that made very few additions in the offseason. They did make some additions recently, but um, you know, to be where they are, I think, is probably you know about maybe where, in a best-case scenario, you would have thought that would have been at the start of the right. year. Right. Well, I think with all of these things, as always, sort of, perspective and nuance and context is important <laughs> um so it's tough because i remember like when that summer in 2018 when Tavares left when their big moves were like bringing in komarov and bringing martin back yeah. and philpilla and then i remember we had the show and i was like i really don't see a path forward if they keep going this way for this team to get back to being competitive and then barry trotz and mitch corn came in and they completely um, sort of moved all the pieces around to make the stingiest defensive team in the league. And I think they clearly rightly identified that they had to play that way. They couldn't yeah. keep playing this sort of run and gun tempo with Matt Barzal as pretty much their only elite offensive player left in the mix. And 
the thing for me that's that's interesting is the discussion of like what the outer bounds are of how high you can achieve uh, success as a team in 2020 playing that way and whether we're seeing them kind of bump into that now from this perspective of like I don't know if you get this feeling following the team but just watching them and I unfortunately watched their five most recent <laughs> game in preparation for the show it feels like a very like tired group yeah. where when you have to outwork and outplay and grind each team and generating offense is like pulling teeth on a nightly basis, it, I'm sure it takes its toll. And once you start losing pieces, it's really tough to sort of combat that. I feel like their margin for error is significantly smaller than it is for like a team of Colorado where it's like yeah. they have Ranton and Makar out, Burkowski, Kadri, and it just doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, I think um, not to bring it around to always Islanders and Leafs since they're always, they seem to be so symbiotically intertwined over the last few years. Um, But I think the Leafs have found out this year uh, the hard way that going all skill and speed and not having enough grit, jam, whatever Mm. hockey term you want to use, uh, NHL in 2020 is not ready for that. You can still get run over and outworked. And the Islanders, I think, in the other direction have found out that you can't just grind your way through two straight regular seasons with essentially the same group and even less of that missing some guys that they've been missing for long stretches. The grind is too much. I think you can see elements of it. I think the game in Ottawa when they gave up a shorthanded goal, Ryan Pollock just, you know, he's a good player. He looked tired. Mm. He's playing 23, 24 minutes and it's not, they're not easy minutes. He's on the point on the first power play. He's one of the first guys out for penalty killing now because of Pollock being out. Um, I think Nick Letty is in the same ballpark where a guys guys that are not necessarily totally reliant on their on their legs to get them out of danger, but are not necessarily physical mm. guys first. Right. Um, they're losing a lot of net front battles, which didn't happen at all last year. Um, so yeah, it's it's just it's a hard way to win games, and it and I think they showed it's a hard way to win a couple of playoff rounds because really they were, you know, against Carolina last year, they could argue quite capably that they were the better team. Those first two games yep. got a couple of bad Even bounces. Game three, that was right. Couldn't there. score. Yeah. Right. Game three was tied right there when Leonard makes the one mistake mm-hmm. and they kind of fell apart. So it wasn't an overall lack of skill that doomed them. It was just, you get a little bad luck and you're a team that has to grind. You can't, you can't grind your way to four or five goals a night. It just doesn't happen in the league anymore. So, um, I think, I think fatigue is, is a factor. I think, all those other factors that are kind of ingrained and and pushed to the side when they're going well, where they can get a timely goal or get a, a couple big saves or really be stout in their own end. When those start to fray a little bit at the edges, uh, the rest of it gets exposed pretty well. Yeah, I think that versatility is like really important. I think you know, I'm, I consider myself a, and I'm a younger individual. I consider myself a more sort of like progressive, modern game thinker, and I, I love when teams going to go against convention and tradition i'd love to see teams like the leafs just try to outscore all their problems and it's more fun to watch certainly but it's no surprise you watch a team like the tampa bay lightning and what they did at this deadline where they add coleman and goodrow and it's like they're trying to shore up their penalty kill they're trying to find different ways to beat teams when the offense isn't going and especially if you're going to make a long playoff run and even over the course of an 82 game season like that being able to beat teams in different way and not just having like it's it's great to have an identity but there's going to be nights where that's not working or you don't have it. And if you can't beat them in any other way, it's, it's going to, you're going to run into problems. Yeah. And I think over this, you know, I think we kind of, I've divided it up as I've written, you know, 16, three and two versus I think it's 19, 20 and seven now Mm. in the last 46. Uh, The divide of getting a a save when they need it is really stark. Thomas Grice, I think the first, uh, those first 21 games, he may have played 12 of them. Um, I think he was at a 934 even straight same yep. percentage 907 since then and you know the the exchange of Varlama of Robin Leonard for Varlama was not met with a lot of welcome yes. in the island in Islanders Twitter Islanders fandom uh, you know Robin Leonard touched you know touched a nerve when he came here with mm. uh, the story that he wrote on our site um, just his openness in general I think he's gained himself a lot of fans even in the yes. two stops that he's had and this the performance year performance didn't hurt after that right and he was playing yes. at, a, at a Vezina trophy level for right. sure all year um and when they made the decision to go away from him and go to someone in Varlamov who I think they had had some interest in in trading for uh at the draft in Lou's first year hmm. but it didn't work out um I think they thought okay well we're we're making a different kind of exchange I think four years for him may have been a bit uh bit much but um they were thinking long-term with Ilya Sorokin possibly coming over to team with Varlamov uh, after this season. So I think there were some other factors that helped him get that long-term deal. But I think you're seeing him. He's been very steady this year. Right. I think you look at the the even strength save percentage numbers from the first hot streak to now. He's been 920, 
roughly what his career average is. Right. But uh, but is that good enough for a team that doesn't produce? And when they fall behind, or when he maybe gives up a bad one, like he did in Ottawa to Anthony Duclair to fall behind, they just don't. Unless they're desperately trying to rally, as they did against the Rangers, or they did against Carolina, they're not the kind of team that can just go out in a third period when they're down a goal or two and wave after wave after wave. They're just not built that way, first of all. And second of all, they're missing a couple of the key guys that can help turn pucks over. So the goaltending, I think, has uh, has not been at such a, an A-plus level right. like it was la- so consistently last year for them to have success. Yeah, I think they're pretty much, based on the uh, Evolving Wilds model, they're like right at like net neutral in terms of goal saved above expected. They're like right where they were. But the issue is last year, Leonard and Grace were like plus 30 right. goal they, saved combined. They, you could put either one in, and they right. were both excellent. So Yeah, I, I think, you know, clearly it's been, if you look at it from like a big picture perspective, I know we're so like everyone has tunnel vision. It's like what happened in the most recent game. But obviously this Lou-Trotz combination has been a massive success for the Islanders, right? They had 100 points last year. They swept the Penguins, especially where they were coming from, I think it's an unequivocal success, but it is that double-edged sword where I think, you know, both guys have a very specific image of the types of players they want on the team, how they want to play. And this is what I've been mulling over a lot where it's like, especially at the trade deadline, I was writing an article for ESPN where I was like, which players should the Islanders target? How can they improve their team? And a lot of the names I was like, yeah, this player would in theory help the Islanders. Can I see the Islanders going out and adding this player to their current mix when they're like a pure offensive scoring winger that has no defensive capabilities? Probably not. <laughs> Spilling words and time over that is is just kind of a waste. And so I think that rigidity kind of hurts them in this case where, you know, you mentioned Adam Pellick, who is a really good defensive defenseman, especially paired with Pollock. They've been one of the better sort of shutdown deep pairings in the league. Casey Zizekas, um, you know, fourth line center in theory, but is so integral to how this Islanders team wants to play. For most teams, removing those guys, you just next man up mentality. Right. You're going to be able to replace it. But for this team, that rigidity of like not being able to just insert random players and expect that exact brand of hockey and how they want to play, I think really hurts them here. And I think that's what we've seen. And also I think what's hurt them is um, maybe for, and this is more for, for trots than Lamarill. I mean, they, they both preach patience with their prospects. The situation with Noah Dobson was an interesting one that they decided very early on in training camp that they were keeping him hmm. uh, probably just to work out and maybe spell Johnny Boychuk or spell Scott Mayfield here and there. Uh, I think the plan for them was was clearly less than 30 games if everyone were healthy. Uh, you don't get through a season with six healthy defensemen, yes. so it happened pretty quickly. And the problem for them was that it happened on the left side initially with Nick Letty first and then Adam Pellick long term. So they had to adjust to kind of a plan B and Dobson goes in and it's really kind of a five and a half defenseman style because they, he's playing a little bit on his offside with Johnny Boychuk, which is limiting... In, in all aspects um, and really, you know, averaging 11, 12 minutes a game as a defenseman, as a young defenseman and, and still trying to work up, you know, off ice, building up strength. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it was kind of an emergency operation. I, I certainly understand that, hmm. but um, you know, I think at, to this point in the year, you haven't seen a lot of progression from Noah Dobson. And if you're going to keep a guy, especially a, a top 15 pick, who's got a lot of potential as a top four defenseman on your roster all year long, he should probably be better at the end of the year than he was at the beginning right. of the year, uh, or at least more prepared for the NHL style. And I think the play he made uh, on the tying goal against Carolina yeah, yeah, was a real, kind of around the net. a real example of, you know, he, he goes deep in the zone, he comes back and he can stop and start really quickly. I think caught Warren Fogle off guard, mm. sneaks around him and the puck comes out in front and guys are kind of at, at sixes and sevens there and Bailey's by himself to tie it up that's not a play that anybody else on their d can really make on the right side yeah. so um i think when you see those kind of flashes you kind of say well the other way the five defensemen and spotting him in is wearing our other guys down do we need to continue with this and continue beating our heads against the wall for these last few games because um if that's the way they're going to get in if even if johnny boychuk can come back from that scary eye injury this is this is what they've got. There's no there's nobody else coming in. So do you want to just scrape to get in and then scrape by a first right. round series against a Boston or a Washington uh, and call it a success? I, I don't think that they're at that place right now. So I think you have to consider more whether it's Dobson, Kiefer Bellows, who really wasn't even considered much of a prospect yet at the beginning of this year. He's got 20 goals in the AHL. He had a couple goals in the NHL in a brief stint. Um, 
Oliver Wallstrom was up for nine games. I understand the considerations with burning his uh, his entry level mm-hmm. year if if he plays another one, but these are guys that have potential for them, and I think we can kind of get into it more with the the trades that they made. But when you when you trade away three of your four top picks in the next two years, you got to have those guys ready to go. Yep. And I, I sort of feel like at this point in the year, if you're not getting offense from your third and fourth line wingers, why not give it a shot? Because you're also not getting enough defense to to keep people off the board. So why not? make a little bit of a you know make a little bit of room for a young guy who can kind of give a little bit of a jolt this time of year and and I think with Dobson I think you might have to take the blinders off and let him play a little bit more regularly. Yeah, I think certainly the upside's there. And I always, you know, people get critical of young players. It's like, oh, well, they're sitting on the bench or they're sitting in the press box because they need to learn. They're making those mistakes. It's not okay at this level. And it's like, there's certainly certain vantage points you can gain from from watching the game from that perspective. But I think also it's kind of like trial by error. You sort of have to make those right. mistakes. And the only way you're going to get better is by actually being out there and going through that. But yeah, I think it comes down to sort of what they're comfortable with right like i think ideally they would love to have i mean we've seen that for i think 50 minutes or so if i on five with that uh devon taves and uh dobson if they were like a sheltered third pairing if everyone was ideally healthy and they had all their pieces i'm sure they'd love to use them in that capacity but because of the injuries they've kind of had to bump everyone up i think a bit beyond their comfort level yeah yeah and i think that that's kind of a you think down the road that would be an ideal second pair maybe right. you know if you have well, especially if you have Pollock and right like eating up right. all the defensive minutes those are guys that that i think you can kind of put people on their heels with and and i understand like you said barry trotz i think when he came in the best thing that he did was identify we got to play yeah the most conservative style we need to play because we don't we're not going to outskill anybody um i think going into the offseason last year they clearly knew that they needed uh a more potent threat up front. It didn't work out whether whatever trades Lou was trying to make Artemi mm-hmm. Panarin, whatever, yep. whoever was out there, which was not a lot of people. So they really redoubled their efforts with their own guys. And, and I think you see the limitations. So, um, you know, I, I they're going to have to change their thinking at some point. I, right. You know, I think we sort of laugh about the idea of Lou Lamarillo at almost 80 years old, changing his thinking, but yes. he's a pretty, he can be a pretty progressive yeah. guy when need, when need be. I think he understands. And I, and I think, um, Hearing how excited Barry Trotz was about the the addition of Jean Gabriel Pajot mm. leads me to believe that there's still a lot of good communication and 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 sharing of ideas between the front office and the coaching staff. They work well together. Um, it's not all on Lou. You can't just call Lou a dinosaur for going out and and trading a pretty big haul for yes. a third line center. Um, so I think this is what Barry wants too. But I and I wonder whether they make the playoffs or not, whether they win around or not, or go out meekly and quickly this offseason is going to be a, a big one for those two guys in terms of how they think about their their team because they're going to have to do a lot of shuffling to get to that level that they want to be at well yeah i think you know it's easy for someone like myself or a casual observer from the outside that isn't a fan or isn't involved with a team to be like you know the metro division is remarkably good this year and deep realistically the islanders are probably like the fourth or fifth best team in that division maybe the third if everything falls into place and it's like is this really the time to be going all in or should you have a more patient outlook but beyond Lou as as you said uh, turning 78 or whatever this fall like they're pretty invested in this group right like whether it's Anders Lee um, Brock Nelson Jordan Eberle uh, Josh Bailey like they've invested pretty reasonable capital for the next four or five years. And a lot of these guys who are late twenties, early thirties. So does it really make sense to be taking a step back for the potential of taking two steps forward later? I I think, you know, I was critical a bit of the pageant trade because I thought it was a lot to give up for a player like him. And and just the general principle of when a guy's shooting a career high and having a career year this late in his career, I don't like paying top dollar for that, but it's tough to argue with the fit, right? Like he's sort of this dream player of slots in as a third center. We've already seen him eating up a ton of defensive minutes for them. Um, I thought that goal he scored against the blues was very uh, sort of tantalizing as that bumper sort of right hand shot one timer for Barzal to have as a pressure release valve. Um, So, you know, listen, they have him now for six years, like, or is it five, five years, right? Uh, six, Six times five. Right. Yeah. So they're going to have him for, <laughs> a, for, for a while. Yeah. It'll be like the rest, you know, for age 28 to 33 years or whatever, like it, at a reasonable price. So I get it. Um, and I think part of the, I don't know, you can weigh in on this, but considering how they sort of swung and missed at um, in free agency last year, I think, 
you know, I look at it like, man, that first second could be potentially used to go and sign some young star to yeah. an offer sheet down the road for $8.5 million per year. That'd be an enticing, higher upside in Pajot. But I think they're thinking, like, who are the UFAs we've signed recently? It's been Semyon Varlama when we gave him more years than anyone was comfortable doing. Andrew Ladd, and we sort of know how that worked out. And beyond that, it's, you know, Fill in, yeah, Derek guys. Broussard, Tom Kunakal. This guy's kind of at the end of the line. It's it's very it's very slim pickings. So I think for them, like they view this as their one rare opportunity to go and add an impact player. And I don't mind it from that perspective. So I I've kind of come around on it a little bit. You know, the results obviously haven't been there for the team. They still need more scoring, but it makes sense. And I think the desperation was certainly there when Sezikis went out. When it was like a lot of Derek Broussard and Leo Komarov down yeah. the middle. Yeah, and Sezikis I think is is going to be skating this week he'll be back at some point before the season ends and then you'll you know that's the vision that they had was having one of the deepest center groups in mm-hmm. the east and and really with Sezikis there and Pajot and your bottom six not only does it give them uh, it takes a lot of the heat off of Barzal and Brock Nelson but I think it, it gives them a comfort level if you bring up a Wallstrom or a Bellows or a Simon Holmstrom because you're not throwing them on a third line that's a complete black hole yep. where you're not going to have any chances they're going to be playing with Pajot, who's a, who's a decent offensive player and also a very positionally responsible player, so maybe you get a little more freedom mm-hmm. as a young person. You see that down the road and you say, oh, okay, I, I get what they're getting at. Yep. But also, like I said, those guys can't miss. You can't, if you bring up Oliver Wallstrom, he's got to score 15 goals as a rookie or mm-hmm. whatever because you don't have anything coming now beyond that. And they were already pretty thin, especially in terms of their forward depth as uh, prospects. And I, and I So I get... You want to be strong down the middle. You want to be strong on D. I think when they're healthy, they are strong on D, and they do have some. You know, they do have Bodie Wild in the system. They have some things coming on D, and they feel pretty secure there. Uh, and in net, if you feel like that Ilya Sorokin is going to come over, that's still the feeling. Then you've got a young goalie who's already had a ton of international success. Yep. So, I you can see what Lou sees, but also right now. Like you said, what you've given up right now, and even also given up a, a, a second rounder in twenty twenty one for Andy Green, yep. who may or may not be back, but is probably more of a six seven type mm-hmm. guy if you want to keep him. Um, the moves that they're going to have to make to improve even next year, unless they really feel like some of their young wingers are ready to go, um, there's going to be it, it's going to be a, a year where you see if Lou Lamarillo still has enough on his fastball because they're already at seventy million in commitments for next year. If my friend and colleague James Myrtle is right, the NHL's rosy projections of eighty-four to eighty-eight million dollars yeah. salary cap are way out of line, and yep. it's going to be more like eighty-two. And you still got to sign Barzal, you've got to sign Taves, you've got to sign Pollock. Mm-hmm. Um, Barzal's not going to be an easy one, even if the other two get done. Ron Pollock is probably a guy you want to sign long term to six or seven million dollars a year as a top pair guy. You run out of space quickly, so they're going to have to they're going to have to get creative. Uh, and on Andrew Ladd's contract, maybe a guy like Nick Letty has to go with two years left, who's who's could be a valuable guy. Leo Komarov could be a buyout candidate with mm. two years left. Matt Martin's a free agent. He's a beloved guy in the room. So they're going to have to make some hard decisions this, this offseason to get to that place that you can see where they, they feel they can get to. I'm I'm interested that I mean I, I get where you're coming from because I could see them drawing a hard line. I think the the Barzell negotiation is pretty easy. You sort of just hand him a blank check, and <laughs> exactly. Ask, ask him how much it's going to take. But I, I, you know, it, they, I think the Islanders he is an RFA, so in, in theory, and we know that teams probably will not be going out of their way to to mess around with that. So they do have a bit of like quite a bit of leverage. But at the same time, it's like you yeah. give him what he wants because yeah. you need to keep him there for the rest of his prime. Yeah, and I think. You know, the the idea for that is probably not too different than it was with Tavares. I mean, obviously it wasn't successful. Tavares, very different situation being a UFA. But, you know, I think the way that, that we found out that Lou was coming in was that he'd had this private meeting with Tavares and I think laid out his vision for what the team could be. Um, so I think it's got to be along the same lines with Barzell. He is your star. He's a much younger guy. And I understand the way that, that Lou and Barry like to treat their younger guys, but but you have to make some capitulations to the the age in which you're working. And, and it's an age of superstars. And I think after last summer, the RFA frenzy, um, you know, the fact that it's really just going to be him and Pierre-Luc Dubois yeah. as kind of the marquee guys, maybe that draws less attention where other teams are like, I'm not going to be in there competing for an offer sheet for a guy that they, they're just going to match right away. Um, and, the, you know, there's not the, the traffic to make yeah. create some confusion. 
So I, uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder what it's going to end up being. I wonder if, um, Lou sort of gives in to the, to the modern negotiations and says, all right, we'll, we'll take, we'll do the four year, four times eight and a half or something and let you get right to the edge of unrestricted free agency because we can't worry about it now because we have all these contracts that have just started and Mm. maybe by then we'll be ready to, you know, give you the big 12, 13, 14, whatever the maximum stuff is by then. So that as in light of the Pajot trade and extension, that that's sort of my feeling now is where Barzal's side is probably headed that they want to focus in on that Mitch Marner sweet spot of taking you right up to the UFA with as much money as you can squeeze out of them um, instead of going longer term or or two year bridge deal. And and uh, and yeah, I think it's going to be a a big, big number and it's going to be something that makes Lou's job even harder in the offseason. Well, and you look at his usage this year. I mean, he's gone up from, you know, five on five last year. He was playing 1358 this year, 1612, which is really high for him. And, and 1755 overall to 20 minutes. And especially lately, there's been games where it's like 23, 24 minutes yeah. a night. And I wonder how much of that is by design and how much of it is sort of necessity because of all the scoring woes we mentioned, but also the injuries where they feel less comfortable rolling all those lines. I, I wonder in an ideal world, how much they'd actually want him playing. And, and, you know, they're certainly, I think, setting him up for success. We can quibble about the wingers that they've armed him with, and I'd still love for them to have more of a sort of natural shooter playing on his wing, but especially lately playing with Eberle and Lee. Like, that, that line has been one of the sort of rare bright spots for them, especially territorially and just dominating a 5-on-5. Five five. Yeah, and I think I think the kind of the the freelancing mistakes that Barzal has been prone to in the last couple of years in general, trying to conform to the system have, have gone away mm-hmm. in, with the confidence that Trotz has shown in him and in the chemistry he's got with these two guys. And it's, it's considering the amount of time they spend in the offensive zone to see Lee still, you know, 20 goals kind of on, on pace for another career low Eberly at 15. He's come on pretty well of late, but, uh, but this is, you know, this is your top line. These are the guys that are getting getting major minutes. You need to have everybody operating at full capacity. And it's been, it, uh, you know, it's got to be frustrating for Barzal. And it, I don't think I think people try to read the tea leaves and wonder if he's so frustrated that he'll he'll say, "I'll take whatever offer sheet I can get. If it's seventeen million per from Arizona, I'll take it." Right. I don't I don't think it's that level. Um, but uh, but I think. I think there's got to be a mandate and I don't, you know, I'm sure nobody's going to demand anything of Lou, but I I imagine that in the summer they have to understand whatever they do. They've got to come out of it with, with a top six winger. That is a, is a no conscience shoot first guy and put them right on Barzal's wing. I know they, the chemistry with, with Lee and Eberle is good, but they have to have more depth. Yeah. But once again, it goes back to what I was saying. Like how, how many, how many of those guys are there where they have that one shot ability while also being a player that, Barry Trotz is going to feel comfortable with in his own zone playing 18 to 20 right. minutes a night. I mean, it, the list is pretty low, and, and those guys get paid quite a bit. Right. I mean, I think the guy that I've mentioned the most is Mike Hoffman, yeah. just because of his age. Right. You know, he's going to be 31 this year. Um, maybe that means you can cut the term down a little bit. You know, maybe he takes, he's willing to take a, you know, a Thomas Vanek style three times six and mm-hmm. a half, three times seven deal that at least is short enough that you can squeeze it in and figure some things out. Um, because that's the kind of guy I think that would thrive with Barzal. You know, I think Wallstrom is kind of the guy they've seen down the road that yes. they want. But, uh, you know, the year that he's had, I don't think he's we're staring at a guy who's who's going to turn the corner next year, maybe even the year after. I think he's still more of going to be more of a work in progress. So, um, and to make even six and a half million a year fit with this group, it's, it's hard to see it right now. And, uh, uh, you know, I think, people have the pipe dreams of Taylor Hall wanting to come play with his old buddy, Jordan Eberle. Mm. But, um, that's going to be, you know, that, that, that would mean you'd have to get rid of one of your core guys that's been signed up. And, and, um, you know, I think they value the chemistry quite a bit and they've certainly talked about it a lot. So I don't know that that they're ready to make a, such a huge tear down, especially among their, their top nine forwards. I think the goal is to, you know, I think people kind of say, well, Josh Bailey's expendable. Josh Bailey is, it now that he's on the other side of 30 is your ideal third line guy. Yeah. Like if he, he and Pajot play together for the next four or five years, that's on a good team. That's yeah. what, that's what you're going right. for. So, um, I think, uh, to be able to add someone is probably the goal just because you need to have the right order. They've got the right order down the middle. When Sezikis comes back, now they need to put some people in the right order on the wings. Yeah. I think getting rid of 
Bailey to add a shooter somewhere else is kind of like, you know, patching up one hole by creating another. Right. Where it's like they need that playmaking. I understand it can be a frustrating player, but okay, let's get into, let's get into the trade line deadline. And we've talked about green. We've talked about Pajot. Um, you know, you alluded earlier to potentially getting rid of Andrew Ladd's contract and figuring that out. Um, do you have any like behind the scenes stuff or, or <laughs> about sort of where they were at with the Parise stuff? I've seen it talked about that, you know, this was something that was in the works, even dating back to last summer. Um, you know, there was speculation that once it became public, Lou just pulled the plug on it. And he was like, this is, this is too mainstream for me. I can't do this. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated. It, it, you know, I think most Islanders fans actually, despite the fact that they paid these exorbitant prices for, for green and Pajot in terms of draft capital, it represented like, a firm direction, kind of like doubling right. down with this group. You can argue whether that's the right way to go or not, but at least it's like the worst place you can be in the NHL is in the middle. Not sure if you're competing now or trying to play the long game for them. It's like, let's just go all in with this group. And I don't know. I'm not sure if necessarily flipping lad for Parise's contract would be considered going all in because it's like a slight extra cap hit. I think it's an extra 1.5 per year or whatever for a couple more years down the road, but it would be like adding a player in theory, a top six shooter, which they could actually use. So it makes sense in practice. I think just the contract itself was like, Oh my God, this team is really just not even doubling, like tripling down on this group. With yeah. Them. It would have been, it would have been a, a short term. Um, you know, I, I, I think of Islander fans as, as, uh, they're not a needy bunch, but but I think they want to feel like someone wants them. They want to feel loved, yeah. Yeah. So when they make the trade for Pajo, they're willing to overlook the cost to say, like, this guy wanted to sign for six years with us? That's yeah. awesome. Like, right. somebody wants to be a part of this organization. That's great. And I think when word comes out that Parise very much wants to be reunited with Lou Lamarillo and be part of his organization, again, it feels like, well, this guy's played a thousand games. He's a successful player. Um, overlooking the fact that in the short term, it probably would have helped them quite a bit. You know, Zach Parise is having a good a good year for a 35-year-old guy who's had his injury history. Um, but, yeah, beyond this year, you know, when you start to talk about will they revisit it in the summer, my question is why? Because hmm. in the summer, you've got a whole yes. range of time and options, uh, and maybe they'll exhaust them all and come back and land back on we're going to get this guy because he's a useful piece for us versus Andrew Ladd, who we don't feel is a useful yep. piece. And we'll, we'll make it work with the extra year and the extra couple million on the cap. Um, but it, you know, the, the fact that they've taken away all the potential sweeteners in terms of draft picks the next couple of years to get Minnesota to pay even a quarter of that cap hit. Uh, I can't imagine that they'd even be willing to pay 50% unless they were going to give up something enormous to going back the other way. Um, it's hard to see it being a benefit from the start of the year. I feel like that's one where you get the adrenaline pumping at the deadline yes. and you're like, this is going to be something that's going to help us compete, score goals, be a better team on the power play, have a guy who's a high character guy who wants to be part of our organization, and we'll worry about the rest later. That was Lou Lamorello 15 years ago, yeah. and I don't think you can afford to do that as much anymore, particularly after you make the Pajo trade. And, I'm, and I don't have any insight whether... They were going to give that first rounder to Minnesota to make this deal work, which would have been completely insane, Yeah, but kind of exciting at the same right. time. I could see yeah. your eyes light up yeah. like, oh, my God, yeah. that would have been amazing. Um, but I think in general, you know, I, Elliot Friedman reported that, that, that the Islanders had inquired on Miko Koivu. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that deal would have been. They maybe right. they inquired, and he said no, right? Right. And they inquired on Joe Thornton, which uh, who, I don't know who said no on that. Do, do Islanders know that there are players <laughs> under 35 years old? They're like on cap friendly sorting by age well, 35 plus. There is a decent size segment of the fan base that uh, enjoys the nostalgia factor. And we've seen John Tonelli's number go to the rafters yeah. and Butch Goring's numbers right. go to the rafters. So, so the dynasty nostalgia is still still feels mm -hmm. kind of strong at right. times and that's where a lot of the the, the longtime fans come from because of the misery from about 1993 to maybe 2012 yep. um you're not generating a ton of fans that way but yeah it's uh so some of these older players are very much on people's <laughs> minds however yeah. in the summer i would think that even a, even a mike hoffman if you can make that contract work is probably a better option than than juggling some roster pieces around to make this trade. I, I don't think they feel like Andrew Ladd is going to be a viable player for them. His contract is completely buyout proof. Yeah. They gain no, they gain nothing other than being rid of him if they buy him out. So uh, I imagine that 
they do want not only selfishly they want the cap to go up but they want the cap to go up as much as possible because there will be a couple of teams ottawa is probably one that's going to need to make some some cap commitments to get there i think johnny boychuk is another guy who's due very little cash but has six million cap hit uh, the next couple of years so i'm sure that they're hopeful that the cap does go up a lot so that they can not only have room to sign their guys uh but also shed some of these other commitments that they really need to get rid of yeah I mean, the tough thing is he's got, I think, three years after this one. So getting a team to basically acknowledge that they're not going to be... There's no chance that they're going to be a cap team for three years down the road right. is, is really tough. We saw with like the Bacchus' contract was just as onerous. When there's one year left, there's like 10 teams out there right. that'll take it on. Um, the other thing that's... I mean, it's such a complicated trade that I think... You know, I was just thinking about the ramifications of it. You know, Lad, as you mentioned, the bio-proof nature of it, I think he's got like 12 million left in terms of signing bonuses down the road, whereas Parise pretty much like he's actually getting paid 4 million in right. real dollars for the final three years of that deal. But from Minnesota's perspective, I mean, we just saw what happened with the Canucks and Roberto Luongo where they're stuck now with this recapture penalty on their books because either Dale Talon didn't want to trade Luongo back to them so they could like do LTIR shenanigans or whatever happened there. I think from Minnesota's perspective, like they're the ones inheriting all this risk with with Parise retires, right? So for them to trade that contract for salary cap relief right now has this potential of backfiring where if they don't control that asset anymore and sort of how they handle the retirement down the road, because he's not going to be playing three years from now when he's making $1 million. um, I'm so fascinated to see what happens if they can sort of justify that risk and what the league does because what is it like it's like a 19 million dollar penalty or something right, in that right, final right. season like i think the minnesota wild will literally not be able to be camp compliant at that point <laughs> if they have to if they have to keep that so i'm like i don't know what the league is going to do there they might have to revisit that but there's so many moving parts there beyond just improving the roster with a better player at the same position yeah and i think seeing how minnesota's kind of made a charge and parise right. is been involved quite yeah, a bit. Got 25 goals this year. Yeah. He's a still he's still a viable player. Be, but, yeah. So I wonder if that's going to change his mind when we get to the to the summer. Uh also in the summer if Lou is thinking about we need to just shed salary, maybe that's, you know, Nick Letty's a Minnesota guy. Um maybe that's a place they send him because it's he's a much more useful piece for a team that acquires him than mm-hmm. an Andrew Ladd is. Um so yeah, so I think maybe it opens up some more creative options on the Islanders end. I'm just curious when you utilize all of your creative options in one trade and end up with a 36 year old guy <laughs> who's got four years left on his deal at 7.5, have you done the most that you can do to make your team better? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a, it is a loaded question. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else there is necessarily to talk about this team. I mean, the results haven't been there. They, they still need the goal score. I mean, whether you, you said the stat earlier, I think they're 10 to 13 and six in 2020, two, seven and three in their last 12, they have 22 goals in their last 12 games. Like, you know, it's the same old problems. The statistical profile is pretty similar to what it was last year. I think they're, you know, the goaltending hasn't been as good and they're like slightly worse at everything, which I think can be explained by the injuries and how they've had to patch things up. Um, But yeah, I mean, they're still right there with like Columbus and Arizona, I think, and Dallas is like the best defensive team. So I think they're, they're going to get Sezikis back. Yeah. It's going to be huge. Uh, you know, they're not going to get Pelic back, and I think that's a problem for them. But um, I don't know. Is there is there any other sort of storylines or things with this team that, that are kind of on the radar right now? Like, no, you know, it's – it's uh, it, like I said, when, when you kind of lay it out the way that the Islanders envision it with Sorokin, and, you know, like I said, from everything I've heard, he's not going to make it over in time to burn the entry-level contract this year because his Red Army team in Moscow is – you know, I think he just had two shutouts and two assists and a sweep in the first round. So he right. he's not due for a little while. Yeah. But but if that's your goalie tandem starting next year going forward for a couple of years, and Sorokin, you know, they see what happened across town with Igor Shesterkin, which who was kind of the Shesterkin yeah. and Sorokin are kind of the one A one B guys uh, in the Russian system in, in the KHL, and Shesterkin has completely revitalized what the Rangers are doing. They, you know, they're getting rid of their Hall of Fame franchise goalie now to make this guy the number one. So. Mm-hmm. I think the Islanders maybe think like, all right, if we bring our guy over, we've got the, one of the best goalie coaches around. I think it might work for us. So um, if you have that in mind, and I, and I think, um, you know, 
maybe the maybe the story of this season is uh, is how underrated Adam Pellick is. Right. That he was such an integral part of what they did. Such a steady guy who had grown from a guy who was a healthy scratch at the beginning of last season, um, and criminally underpaid at one point six for another year, and yeah. then still an RFA at the end of that. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic that they have on D, and I and I think. Uh, it's still credit to to Barry for keeping essentially the same group of defensemen that they that Doug Wade had and couldn't stop a beach ball right. in their own end to this group now that's starting to fray a little bit. Like I said, you know they're not winning. A, I, I think I, I think in this two th- seven and three stretch they've given up nine goals that were either net front deflections, rebounds, screens. They're not protecting the house as well as they did last yeah. year, but but it's still a, a very impressive group. And I think Devon Taves. Um, you mentioned earlier as a potential second pair mm-hmm. partner with Noah Dobson is a guy who is probably not of the three RFAs they have. He's going to be probably the simplest one because yeah. he's not a big name, but he's a guy at age 26 who I think is grown into a pretty decent role um, and, and a pretty decent player back there. I think their, their top four on D is set for a long time with Pelican Pollock and, and Taves and Dobson and even Scott Mayfield, who's pretty underpaid and can kind of spot in and out there. It's, um, it's still a pretty sturdy group. I mean, I think I think they can at least feel like they've solved some problems over the last couple of years and that they're focused very much on improving their forward group, especially on the wings. Um, but they do need a lot of improvement there. Yeah, Taves profiles is the type of player where you want to sign him to more years just because I feel like, you know, because of his usage and, and everything and sort of how little time he's spent in the league so far relative to his age, like the... The stuff players typically get paid for, which is offensive counting stats and boxcar stats, aren't completely there yet. So you can get them at a bit of a discount. Whereas if you're having to revisit this two or three years down the road, it could be a completely different sort of salary ballpark. Right. Yeah. And I think when they start to think about how are we going to change and evolve to go from being a team that just grinds it out to being a team that, that can open it up a little bit more, I think anybody who watches an Islander game can see that this is a guy who's going to be the one leading that charge because he's got such good skating ability. He's got good offensive instincts. He's going to be probably their top power play guy on the point for a long time as more of a distributor, not really a big shooter. But, um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, credit to Garth Snow for digging him out in the fourth round several years ago, which is also the same round, I think, a year later that they got Ilya Sorokin. So we'll give it a little... What's sh- Garth up to right <laughs> uh, still, still on Long Island. I think he's doing some youth hockey coaching. Yeah. Um, Still being paid handsomely by the Islanders. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's funny to think back to a couple of years ago when billboards were going up and he's got to go and, and fans were at their, their complete boiling point. And now we're a couple of years later uh, with some modest success last season. The fans are still at their boiling point. <laughs> and, we're, and we feel like it feels online like we're back to the boiling point. Yeah. spot because I think the expectations were raised so much when, when uh, last year unfolded. Yeah, it's funny. So... Um, my editor at ESPN last off, last spring um, had me rank the 16 playoff teams in terms of defense position groups, forward position groups, goaltending, and I made the mistake of putting the Islanders at 16. Not because of you the, did it on purpose. We can you love you love the you well, love to of engage. Of course, I love to be I love to be yelled at online and called names. Of course, but also it was, it was really funny because like the whole premise was just individual talent. And so, for example, I had like Pittsburgh ahead of them because I was like, Chris Letang is a more dynamic player right. than any defenseman the Islanders have. And people are like, look at their goals against. Like, how do you not understand? I'm like, how much of that is, you know, trots, the system, the goaltending, and the players themselves, but like fitting all of that together. It's so much goes into it. And, and this entire discussion of, you know, we're going to get much more info on this when the tracking data becomes available and we know how to utilize it and weaponize it, but um, sort of quantifying defense and figuring out how this works is clearly you know the islanders make a point of we don't care about shot attempts we care about where they're coming from and pushing everything outside and kind of keeping the middle of the ice open or clogged in this case with their defensemen um and sort of how much of that is like coaching impact versus the players themselves i think you you having covered the 2017-18 islanders versus the 2018-19 and 2019-20 islanders you can probably attest to the fact that relatively similar personnel wildly different results so probably coaching is there but how many coaches other than you know trots and maybe tortorella and a few others have that type of impact like there's so many things to bake into team defense yeah and i think i think the messaging is important too you know Doug Waite had a a very capable coaching staff a lot of experienced guys I mean Luke Richardson is 
doing a good job with Montreal. I don't think he's forgotten how to coach. Mm. Same with Kelly Bookberger, who's now back in the Western League. But but these were not inexperienced guys. Doug was not an inexperienced assistant. I think the messaging was just harder for that group. And I think that, you know, in hindsight, the tension of the Tavares situation really pushed things to a breaking point quickly when they started to lose a little bit that there was you know he he is a he is tries to always maintain that very rock solid image but i think he was struggling a bit and i think it translated into some of his play during the kind of the two-month mm-hmm. stretch where they really fell off a cliff um so i think yeah the messaging definitely helps now barry is is as good a people person as as you know as any nhl coach i think he develops good bonds with his with his players and with his fellow coaches there's a there's a very streamlined message um so it it does it does help but i think something that and it even goes back to you know when jack capuano had this team kind of pointed in the right direction in 1415 and 1516 and they were kind of ahead of the curve on playing a very up tempo wave after wave after wave style we're gonna we're gonna hound you and hound you and, yeah. and turn pucks over and they were playing at a you know kind of that up speed you know high speed game um to be able to sustain any style like that for a couple of years you it, it takes a lot of luck you have to be healthy you have to keep the same personnel you have to keep that personnel has to keep the same mindset and uh you know and i think when you see whether it's a Zizekas or a Cal Clutterbuck or even a Johnny Boychuk, whose play is definitely reflective of his age. And, mm. and I think his minutes have been reduced accordingly before his injury. But I think when those guys who are the ones that are kind of setting the example, you know, I think, um, you know, crazy as it sounds, Val Filippola, who had one of the all time luckiest shooting years last yeah. year, I think losing a guy who's just as consistent a pro as that guy is to a team that needs some examples around it or needed some examples around it. It's just, it, you know, you kind of, they're small incremental losses, but they're hard ones to absorb. And I think, you know, when you see the way that they play now in terms of their forecheck, it, you miss a guy like Zizekas. You mm. want him racing around in the, in the offensive zone with his stick in a good position. And, and I think, the you know, the message doesn't change, but it maybe is received a little differently when the guys that are the most receptive to it aren't there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, the actual defensive results there are, are, are similar to goaltending isn't as good. But, like, just watching, I remember, like, I picked the Penguins to win that round one series. So did everybody. And just watching, <laughs> like, literally after, like, the first game, I was like, oh, my God, like, this defense cannot leave their zone with possession of the puck. Like, right. It was, like, it was pretty much that. Like, the entire game was played on one half of the ice, and it would just flip after each intermission. But it was like, the Islanders would just dump it in, just grind the crap out of them, get the puck back, do it all over again, and eventually... If you're doing that, the puck's going to bounce to a spot where a guy can put it into the net. And we haven't seen nearly enough of that recently. And, and I think part of that is um, what you're talking about in terms of just that sort of sustainability of not... If we, as soon as you remove one piece, no matter how um, sort of inconsequential it may seem to a casual observer at home, it is like kind of like a foundational uh, Jenga piece where all of a sudden the stack just comes yeah. crashing down. Especially when you're not dealing with a top six that's super high end. Right. And, and you can't just sort of... You can't paper over the 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 losses well, or the mistakes and especially with how this team and, and i do commend that like i think generally people think about the islanders as um you know under lou and, and even under trots like this like kind of throwback defensive team um you know not necessarily very modern but like i've actually i really like the way they deploy their forwards and and, and even their defensemen just the usage in terms of like they clearly have an idea of which players they want to get out there when they're attacking and which players make that possible for them. And when you remove the players that make it possible, all of a sudden everyone's having to do something that maybe their skill set isn't suited for. Sure, yeah. And I, and I, I think the best example is seeing Derek Broussard between Matt Martin and Cal Clutterbuck. Yeah. I don't think that's what Derek Broussard signed on no. for. Um, you know, he's had to change his game a little bit, but he's, you know, I think if you look at his most frequent uh, partners when he's been at, a, at center and really his best stretch has been as a wing, mm. um, it's it's not an impressive group and right. uh and that's you know you're not going to be able to produce that way i think he's a guy whose production is very tied to his confidence like a lot of players even at his age so it's um yeah it just you know it, it sort of bit by bit wears you down as the schedule goes along 
All right, Art. Well, um, let's get out of here. This is where uh, I'm going to let you plug some stuff. I know you've got a podcast <laughs> of your own now, so I'm going to let you talk about that a little bit and uh, where people can check out your work and what they can expect uh, from you down the stretch here with like less than 20 games left now. I know. Uh, well, I'm at The Athletic um, on Twitter at State Athletic. You can follow me for all of my uh, Islanders and terrible music recommendations <laughs> uh, and our podcast in its first year called No Sleep Till Belmont, which you can get on Apple and Spotify and everywhere where you could find this fine podcast which is much more established and <laughs> streamlined than ours but it's myself and uh, former nhl mark parish and we chop up uh, all the islanders topics twice a week so it's uh, it's been fun so far nice well this was a blast art i'm glad we got to do this uh this is the end of our fifth episode hopefully we have at least five more <laughs> down the road i'm looking forward to it and uh yeah we'll chat soon thanks dimitri anytime cheers before we get out of here, I just wanted to do a couple uh, quick little housekeeping notes. First off, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to the show. As always, it's crazy to think that we are approaching episode 350 here and we'll blow past it um, during the postseason at some point. I, I uh, yeah, it's just it's just surreal. I'm, I'm really uh, thankful for everyone who listens to the show, makes this possible, um, and hopefully you enjoy this conversation with Art Staple and and all the stuff down the road. Um, you know, we are going to do another mailbag episode at some point here down the road. So if you have any questions, and I know that um, usually, especially if you want to provide context or really get into a topic, maybe Twitter is in the best format for that. So you can feel free to email me at, at dimitri.filipovich at gmail.com or at hockeypdocast at gmail.com. Um, and kind of feel free to get into it there. And we're going to try to uh, try to answer it and, and have some more fun with these shows. I've got some some cool guests lined up. Um, I'm really, you know, there's a couple more shows here where we're going to talk about kind of storylines we're interested in down the stretch and highlighting individual teams. I've got Patrick Johnson coming on next week, I think, and we're going to talk about the Canucks and uh, the rumors of Mike Gillis interviewing with the Devils and, you know, how uh, covering a team closely with, um, you know, all the coronavirus concerns and everything changing the media landscape is. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to all that, but I'm really looking forward to the postseason where we're going to be able to um, just kind of get into the nitty gritty of each individual matchup and really deep dive them. And and, and that's, a, you know, especially round one is clearly the uh, the most fun part of the season. So um, look forward to all that. In the meantime, please, uh, you can help the show out by going and rating and reviewing the show. Leave us a five star review, hopefully, um, you know, you genuinely mean it and you enjoy it. Um and if you can leave, uh, you know, some sort of comment, where, whether it's an inside joke or genuinely how uh, the podcast, uh, you know, how you consume it, what you enjoy, all that. Um, I really love seeing all those and appreciate them. And it goes a long way towards helping the show and uh, helping kind of keep the lights on in this operation and keeping things going. So uh, go rate, review. Uh, if you're listening to this, you're probably already subscribed, but maybe go share the show with someone who you think isn't listening but might enjoy it. Um, and yeah, so we'll be back uh, next week with a couple of shows, I think, as we gear towards this uh, this stretch run in the postseason. So thanks for listening. We're going to play the outro music now, and you're going to be hearing from me soon. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.